1996, uh, Neil Stevenson wrote an amazing article for Wired magazine in which he documents the incredible people who lay undersea cabling, um, which seems to be one of those crafts, not unlike um, the sculptors and masons who built cathedrals, that takes a lifetime to perfect uh, against an incredible odds um, to lay cabling that essentially we now all rely on in terms of being able to access a global internet. And the piece was written uh, as much to document his research for the book Cryptonomicon. But one of the things that he reaches as a conclusion to that document is a very interesting premise on essentially what those cables mean in terms of a modern day equivalent to a nuclear proliferation. That is to say, these cables link the continents of the globe and they create that intersection and networking of connectivity that we think of as the internet. But all the countries on which those cables essentially surface on beaches are sitting there with the power to cut them. They all recognize that the ability to cut those undersea connections would mean as much damage to themselves as to others in much the same way that sitting on the red button that might launch a missile would have a similarly catastrophic effect for everybody involved. But it is the fact that countries sit on either end of every single one of those cables with that same power that keeps everybody in check. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of Museopunks. My name is Jeff, and I am here, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Suze, over in Australia. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm great, Jeff. I was about to say g'day from Australia and play up my Aussie location. Um, hi, I'm well. How are you doing? <laughs> doing, doing well. Uh, it is summertime here in Pittsburgh. It's sunny and 85 degrees, and I'm loving it. I don't understand what that means because I still use Celsius, but I'm going to have to learn, aren't I? Oh, yes, you are. You're no, <laughs> no, no longer uh, an Aussie. This indeed uh, what's will... happening? You got big news. I do have big news. I'm so excited. In 11 days from today, so that's going to give away exactly when we're recording this. In 11 days <laughs> from today, I am going to be hopping on a plane to fly to Baltimore to be join, joining Nancy Proctor at the Baltimore Museum of Art, which I am so excited about. Coming to America. Awesome. Yeah. That's so great. Congratulations. Ah, thank you so much. It's a whole new city, a whole new country, a new job, a new museum. There's so much to explore. <laughs> a whole a whole new time zone, which will a make these recordings so much easier. <laughs> Absolutely, except that I'm going to have to learn what Fahrenheit temperatures mean, and I'm going to have to learn not to spell with a U, like color yeah, with a yeah. U. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and what's even what's even cooler is that Baltimore is not that far from Pittsburgh, so maybe we can uh, maybe we can do some uh, site visits and things like that. So uh, that's really great. I uh, it's a great position for you. I'm so happy for you. Yeah, I'm super excited, and you're absolutely right. It's going to make doing this show really interesting as well, um, even in terms of a time zones. But yes, we can go and actually check out some places together. That could be fun. 
Yeah, that that would be cool uh, to bring a new element to the show. Maybe, uh, maybe some some deep dives on on location at museums would be great. That would be amazing. Um, but so you're coming to America, yes. and on this show, this episode, we are dealing with uh, an issue that uh, kind of stems out of America, but is a global issue, and that is uh, net neutrality. Right. I mean, this is something that I've been seeing from Australia. I've been watching the net neutrality debate for a while, but it's sort of, um, it's really coming to bed, I think, right at the moment, because there's a vote on the 15th um, around some proposed regulations by FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler. And I think it's really interesting for us um, as museums to be talking about this issue and to be getting into what this actually means for us. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, thinking about net neutrality, um, in, in the terms, in terms of museums and how, um, a decision on net neutrality could impact museums into the future, um, is, is an interesting topic. And we have, um, a very smart, uh, thinker on the show this month, um, Titus Bicknell, um, who is, is well-versed in the topic. Yeah, absolutely. This is a super interesting interview, and I think it really breaks down a lot of the issues that we've got um, to bear in this discussion. Titus Bicknell is a technologist, co-founder of Pink Inc. and thegallerychannel.com, and co-principal of Museums and the Web, LLC. Apart from a fascinating stint at NBC Universal in 2007-2008 working on the big screen, Titus has spent the last 10 years exploring the small screen with both web and handheld. As chief engineer at Antenna Audio and subsequently head of mobile technologies at Discovery Communications, he was fortunate to participate in groundbreaking handheld projects at Tate Modern, the Louvre, uh, Pompidou, the Intel Museum, and the Getty, amongst others. Now, Titus is currently the Chief Digital Officer for RLJ Entertainment. At various times, Titus has been a filmmaker, a Latin scholar, an avid cyclist, and a plugin developer for the WordPress open source platform. Titus, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you for having me. It is really fantastic. Now, today in this episode, we're digging into the concept of net neutrality, of what it is and why it matters. The discussion's coming off the back of new internet regulations proposed by the American Federal Communications Commission Chairman Tom Wheeler, and the new rules would allow internet service providers to charge a premium for those who can afford to pay to deliver their content better and faster to online audiences. Titus, you're a principal at Museums on the Web, and they've joined the Museum Computer Group in the UK and the Museum Computer Network, uh, which is more US-based, in expressing concern about these proposed regulations. Before we get into the question of why this is an issue that matters so much to museums around the world, can you tell us a little bit more about what net neutrality actually is and what we're talking about when we use this term? Sure. Um it is a, an important concept um, because there's a lot of complexity in the digital delivery of the content that we all enjoy. Um, and the challenge is that a lot of that complexity gets hidden as we start trying to understand how it's being regulated, who has control over which pieces of the puzzle, and how that might impact people at different points in the process. 
it, it has been most simply put as saying um, that when I buy my internet service, the only relationship and condition I expect from my ISP is that they will provide me with a certain size of pipe, a certain speed of delivery, mm-hmm. but that any content that I request from any site anywhere on the planet will be delivered with the same expediency. Now, in practical terms, that means I'm as likely to receive content quickly from Netflix as I am from the Getty website. I, uh, or, you know, just as likely from a paid service like the New York Times as I am from Wikipedia. There should be no privileging of a certain site's content over another based on their size, their corporate status, or whether that's a paid service. Mm. Now, what the FCC yeah. regulations around neutrality or, or the lack thereof are stating is that we should really be thinking of it more like uh, a toll road. Um, those of us who live in the D.C. area are are painfully familiar with 495, the beltway that runs around the city. And there is now a toll lane on the section on the the Virginia side of that road, um, which essentially means that if you're prepared to pay every day for the privilege of driving on that brand new stretch of road, you can get to your destination much faster than somebody who either is unable to incur that charge or feels that that's just too much of an expense to incur on top of the cost of already running a car and paying taxes. But it has a a meaningful impact on your drive time. Um, Mm -hmm. And if time is valuable to us all, um, what the FCC is essentially saying is, well, by the same analogy, an organization who feels that its content should arrive in a more timely fashion should be able to pay that toll. And so the challenge is, in one sense, we're very familiar with that notion as drivers or as consumers of uh, a lot of technologies or services where there's a premium that you can pay to get somewhere faster. We're, we're all aware of the Ryanair model, where you can literally pay for everything, including the ability to board the plane five minutes before anybody else. So we think of it as a free market concept. Mm. And the idea, therefore, that I could choose to prioritize the delivery of some content on the internet over another somehow has a meaningful analogy in our lives. And we think, oh yeah, that makes sense. The problem is that I, uh, for a lot of reasons, and those reasons are being very, very well articulated by organizations, not just in the arts uh, and in the public sector, but also interestingly big business, it shouldn't be seen as that kind of an analogy. Mm. Right. So, so Titus, uh, what makes this conversation about net neutrality different than just that? By you know, buying um, early uh, admission to an, uh, a flight or something like that, and and why does it matter to museums at this point? Mm. I, that, I think the the key to that question is who's in a position to pay. Mm. So what the ISP is not offering me as a consumer of an ISP service is the ability to say, I will pay you, the ISP, a premium to deliver me content from the five museum websites I'd like to visit. Right. Right? And, and that's where the analogy begins to break down. But in the shorthand of expressing the analogy, we think, oh, yeah, it's like a toll road or it's like buying uh, premium access to an airplane. What's happening is the reverse of that. Somebody is saying, I'm going to pay the ISP as a business to make sure that anything that my customers request from me, be it Hulu, be it any other service, 
will actually arrive with that customer before the content from my five favorite websites of museums. Right. The, cha- the challenge as consumers is that we, na- we may not either be technically aware of the process or patient in our web surfing habits to place the blame in the right place. I mean, we, we all know from a statistical basis that you have less than three seconds to engage with somebody on a website mm. before they go, oh, you've, you've made me wait for two and a half seconds, I'm going somewhere else. So if we think about the reality of this, if I've opened two browser tabs in my whatever browser I want, and in one of them I'm loading a museum website, and in the other one I'm, I'm loading Netflix, and because of the Netflix process of buying into that fast lane, three, four, maybe five seconds go by before the website of the museum shows up, I will very quickly stop visiting the museum because the user experience has been compromised. Hmm. Right. I mean, I think that seems like a really significant but also sort of invisible problem. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like something you'd necessarily be aware of. Thinking beyond museums as well, I, I suppose one of the ideas that comes up a lot when we have when I've been reading these discussions about net neutrality online and the proposed regulations is this idea that a neutral public internet offers opportunities for competition and innovation and creativity, freedom of speech, and even sort of non-discriminatory access to information, which is, I I suppose what you're getting at here is if we don't have those delays in service, then at least the service is non-discriminatory. Is this, is, is this the case? And, and if so, why is this? Why does a neutral internet offer these opportunities in a way that mm-hmm. um, one with these regulations doesn't? No, I, I think that's a, a hugely interesting way of expressing the, the challenge of this. Um, there's been a lot of conversation over the last 10 years about the internet gap, much as we've talked about the poverty gap or other literacy gaps. And there's a very tangible and real sense in the world that such a large percentage of the planet does not have access to the internet in any form at all, Mm. that this is creating an enormous disadvantage to those communities. We we are all aware of the fact that access to the internet increases awareness, increases education, especially self-education, increases awareness of human rights abuses, of abuses in all senses of the word around the world, simply because we are able to access information, verify it amongst multiple sources very quickly in a way that traditional scholarship didn't allow. Mm. So if what we're saying is in that binary situation, somebody with access to the internet is better informed and therefore able to make better democratic and individual and personal decisions than somebody who doesn't, by the same analogy, if some of the information that the internet that I am in a position to reach reaches me faster than others, it's very easy to see how if somebody chose to pay to accelerate the delivery of certain information over others, you would not get a complete and fair picture of a situation. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's open very quickly to an abuse that says a certain message, whether it's left-wing or right-wing, whether it's to the benefit of a certain company or another, would always get to you more quickly than the other side of the story. So that other side would have a much harder time being heard. And we're all aware that in, you know, the space of the arts or the space of cultural heritage, there tends to be a prioritization of the corporate over that public information, Mm. you know, and, and 
it's not to say that we don't place different values on a TV show as we do on an exhibition, but if the internet is making it so much harder for us to get to that information about the show, the museum show that is, rather than the television show, we will increasingly as a community lean towards the television offering rather than the museum offering. Right. Yeah, it's 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 kind of easy on the surface to th- to think of this problem as a as a kind of United States based problem or American based problem. But in in the UK Museum's computer group letter to the FCC, um, they write this. They say, um, while the museum computer group is based in the United Kingdom, every audience member and institution we work with would be affected if net neutrality was lost and non-discriminatory access to information was put at risk in the United States. The creativity and innovation inspired by the cultural and heritage sectors are best supported by the truly open Internet. Are they right? I mean, is this, is this truly an international problem? Oh, fundamentally and absolutely. Um, and it's one of the things that rumbled f- very loudly for many years prior to this issue around net neutrality was the fact that we do not really have a global governing body of the Internet. Um, the, the U S in, in various guises, whether it's ICANN or W3C in a sense has said, we are going to monitor and maintain the structure of the internet that we all rely on for the good of everybody, but it is not a democratic process. It can't be, that is to say the assignment of an IP address can't be democratic. It's got to be in one place only the assignment of domain names, but in a sense, it's not even an oligarchy. It is a very, very clear sense of one country taking ownership of this in a benevolent dictator state. Mm. Um, But we all know that that is always open to an abuse of power at some point because it's all it takes is one individual government in this case to decide to do it differently. Um, And then everybody in the world suffers or potentially suffers. So what the FCC is saying that they, in a sense, broadly support or may be not broadly supporting. Uh, We're seeing that that some of the evidence over the last few days indicates potentially a change of view on this, hopefully, Um, that if anybody can buy it, then anybody in the world could be disadvantaged by that. I think the other piece of this that I did want to flag is that um, the, the focus of the FCC ruling is about what we call the last mile, the relationship that an individual consumer has with his or her ISP and access to content from anywhere thereon. But if I request a web page, there's a, a, a sequence of intermediaries. There is the ISP that manages the last mile, and that might manage a, a community, perhaps local, um, or if we're talking about the Time Warners or the Verizons or the Comcast of the world, a fairly large percentage of the American population, but by no means a global audience. Mm. In order to get the content from the actual server on which that website sits, the server is connected via ISPs to almost always a content delivery network. Content delivery networks don't necessarily appear as brands that we we know and are familiar with, but they operate globally. So Akamai, Level 3, CloudFront, These are services that actually are in a similar position to do deals with the ISPs or to do deals with their clients to say we could prioritize or deprioritize content. And because the content delivery network structure of the planet is a global structure, 
Mm. It wouldn't just affect a local community. Mm. It would affect a global community. Um, so I, I think it's important to flag and, and actually Reed Hastings from Netflix did in an article he wrote to say it's, it's not just about the last mile, it's about all the miles in between that we need to be aware of and that some of the concern is around CDN control and power. Because if a CDN suddenly decided that they're going to prioritize or charge a premium for certain content delivery, it would have a global impact on the delivery of content from multiple, multiple sites. Huh. See, this idea of the last mile, I think, is quite interesting, even in terms of the timing of this conversation, because right now we're, we're talking just days before the FCC will vote on this issue, but I understand that this is a long conversation that's been happening you know, around the world in sort of relation to the internet. If mm -hmm. net neutrality is lost... What can museums then expect in the near and not so near future in terms of how we deliver content, how we speak to audiences? What are the implications for us? Well, I, th I think we can imagine a scenario in which um, the, the business community goes, okay, the FCC has decided that there is a way of buying into this and so we'll just make it a cost of doing business. Mm. And in every other case where this happens, whether it's a fuel surcharge or a tax on tobacco or a tax on alcohol, businesses simply pass that increased cost onto the consumer. So you might see an organization that does a lot of internet delivery go, okay, I'm going to buy the fast lane and I'm going to have to buy it across multiple ISPs in order to reach the entire audience that I serve. I'm going to add all of that up and then I'm going to add a dollar or two dollars or a pound or a euro to the monthly subscription that people pay for that service. Mm. And what they will say to their consumers and justify it is to say, we want you to have the best possible experience. You're already paying for it. We want to guarantee that you get it. So we're going to pay everything that the FCC is allowing the ISPs to, to le leverage on us, but we're going to have to pass it on to you. The challenge there is that that means that all of those organizations will simply float up into the fast lane by passing the charges on. 90% of the organizations that we care about in the cultural sector don't have that kind of purchasing power. Mm. They don't have discretionary money that they could say, right, I'm a museum and I'm going to pay Verizon or Comcast to deliver my content, as it were, on an equal playing field with big businesses. And so you would very rapidly find yourself in a situation where 90% of the sites out there would be experienced more slowly than the 10% who are prepared to make those payments. Mm. And to, to the point earlier on, we are so time sensitive when it comes to our experience of the internet mm. that even a small lag in the majority of your viewing habit or your consumption habit on the internet would very rapidly change the way in which you experience content and what you chose to quote unquote stick around for. Sure. So Titus, do you think that, that what we have now is, is what we need? I mean, the way people access the, I mean, what's the right. alternative, right? No, that, that's a, that's a great question. And one of the, the flip sides to this I've heard and, and, I think it's a very valuable and meaningful conversation is to say, well, if the FCC is going to remove the regulation and allow this to be an open market, 
it will self-level somewhere else. And that this may mean that organizations come into an existence that aren't there now. You know, it might be an ISP um, that acts in the interests of the cultural sector specifically and says, we are going to ensure, we are going to aggregate the content from the world's museums and we are going to make it possible for that as a, a large collective force, in a sense, unionizing a web experience to be delivered on the same parity as a big business. Um, the, the hope, therefore, is that free market will always end up with a better solution for the consumer. And that's one of the reasons why I think in the US, the notion of the FCC regulating this has somehow seen to be not in the best interest of consumers. What's interesting is to see actually that while that may be a viable alternative, A, it's going to take time, and B, it does depend on organizations that have very different motives than most businesses, mm. feeling that it's worth in spending time and energy on that kind of aggregation of content, reaching out to all of those partners, finding ways of, of doing the deals collectively which we all know for, for the best wins, wills in the world are very difficult to do when you're talking about that many individuals. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, it's, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't despair that something like that could exist. And I don't, um, I don't think that things that people care about won't always find other ways of getting the audiences they need. Um, but I think this will be a major deterrent in some ways to that freedom of speech, freedom of cultural expression, and freedom of sharing that'll take a long time to adjust and for that free market to level. Right. Now, Titus, you're going to be at the American Association of Museums conference next week, wearing your Museums and the Web hat, and talking to people about this issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you'll be, how people can find you, um, what, what you're going to be doing there? Sure. Um, we, we are going to be having a, a booth in the space um, and essentially a collection of museum professionals and consultants who care passionately about the space, um, bring expertise from lots of different walks of life. A lot of us have quote-unquote day jobs as well as uh, our interest in the museum field. Um, to really bring all of these quite complex uh, issues into a forum where we can whiteboard them, we can discuss them, we can um, try and help people understand a little bit more about what's underneath um, both the policies being made and the directions that people are taking on this. Um, so if, if you're in Seattle and you're able to stop by, uh, that would be fantastic. Well, I will be there and I will stop by um, to, to say hi and, and, and learn more. Um, Titus, thanks for, um, for being a part of this. Um, if one of the listeners or some of the listeners want to um, connect with you online, uh, where can they do that? Uh, Twitter is always good, at Titus Bicknell. Um, uh, that's probably the safest place to find me. Um, what, what I would also encourage people to do is to come to museumsontheweb.com Um as a community site, we're gathering lots of opinions. Um, Nancy Proctor has done a lot of work to collate some of the ways in which people can express their views uh, and their objections uh, to the FCC um, intention. 
um, and a lot of information about how to reach your senator or your congressman, or if you're not in the U.S., other entities that are representing the global view of this. Um, but also just to to know that if you post comments there, uh, I'll get back to you at some point as soon as I can. Uh, Titus, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for this uh, chat. It's been super interesting, and I have such a better sense of this whole conversation now, which is so important. Well, great. And and thank you for posing really interesting questions. It's helped me think about it in in new ways too. So that was a super interesting discussion, I thought, Jeff. Um, There's so much in this topic, and it seems like a really impactful one for us as museums, but actually for everyone, not just for cultural institutions. Yeah, it's it's so important, I think. You know, the the foundation of the web and the foundation of the internet, um, you know, is this idea that that you know, we're all we're all fundamentally equal and we sh- we should be able to um have have equal access to those things and I, you know, it's it's just very important and I hope everyone listening um, you know, finds out more um, and is informed on the issue. And I, hopefully we, we helped with that today. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Titus is not the only one who's going to be at AAM uh, next week. You're also going to be heading to the conference. What are you doing there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. This is my first AAM, and I'm going to be on uh, a session. Um, it's called From, Crowds- or From Crowdsourcing to Community Sourcing. And it's, uh, it's, I'll be on a panel with, with Lori Phillips from the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, Petra Pankow from uh, Montclair Art Museum, and Daniel Davis from the National Museum of the American Indian. A good, a good diverse panel. And basically um, w- what I'll be talking about is, is some of the projects that we've done here at, at Carnegie Museum of Art um, that harness um, community input and how and I'll be looking at how those projects have impacted our organ, organizational dynamics here. So it's interesting. Um, that session is Tuesday, uh, May 20th at 8.45 a.m. I'm, you know, if, if anyone listening wants to check it out, swing by. Um, I'm going to try to maybe have some Museo Punk swag if I can, if I can put it together. <laughs> um, no, no promises, but maybe we'll have some stickers or something like that. Um, and then... Uh, also, one last plug at AAM plug for for the AAM 2014 karaoke jam put Amazing. on by Mr. Mr. Coven Smith. Um, <laughs> that again is May 20th at 10 p.m. at the Rockbox, um, and uh, it's always a fun time whenever Coven grabs the mic or anyone. Uh, else grabs the mic. Yeah, I have karaoke. to say, I think um, museum conference karaoke is definitely a great way to unwind with colleagues and to actually get to know them better, which is really significant. Yeah. So a- anyone interested, um, all of these links and topics that we talked about today will be on the internet at yes. museopunks.org slash one six for episode 16. Suze. Where can people catch up with you? Oh, probably online. in Baltimore. Oh, online? <laughs> just, just drive to Baltimore and knock on Suze's door. <laughs> Absolutely. No, online people can find me on Twitter at ShinesLike or on my blog, which is museumgeek.wordpress.com. But yeah, I think really you should just come and hang out with me in Baltimore in my new city with my new museum to explore. Jeff, where can people find you? 
uh, at Static Made or staticmade.com. And um, Suze, I, I'm so excited you're coming to America. I'm so excited you're coming to Baltimore. Just please do not become a Baltimore Ravens fan. <laughs> I make no promises at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, safe travels across the ocean. And the next time we speak, we will be in the same time zone. Amazing. I can't wait to chat to you then. And this has been really fun. Thank you, uh, Jeff. And thanks, Titus, for a great episode.